Welcome to Constructing a Construction. I am Jeb Bondicker, and I will be joined by Noah Fummerfeld, an Associate Professor of Political Science at Western University. Dr. Fummerfeld is an expert on constructive analysis and political theory. Before we begin, Professor, may I ask for your pronouns? Thank you for this question. Part of my work is bringing to the surface those underlying identities that are hidden behind more hegemonic identities. My pronouns are he and him. May I ask yours? Great. I also use he and him. And in general, Professor, it's been a little bit since we've last met. How are you doing? And how have you been getting through this pandemic? I won't lie. It's been a struggle. I miss my students and the active learning experience of in-person lectures. On a positive note, I have begun to write a new book about the Israel and Palestine conflict and how borders and identities intersect. I would like to preface our discussion by explaining how this meeting came to fruition. Dr. Flummerfeld and I incidentally met at a conference hosted by PhD candidate Diana Lalonde, which included leading social constructivist theorists from around the world. And upon formally meeting, we both agreed to have a proper discussion on some of the topics discussed later on in this podcast. Yes, I was thoroughly engaged by the seminar, and we found out we have a lot in common during the discussion portion of the conference. For sure. We've already had some very engaging discussions, which I want my listeners to hear about. I'll try my best to serve. Dr. Flummerfeld has joined us today to discuss how states, borders, and citizenships are constructed. He will be drawing upon articles from other fellow academics which are interested in the same field. Yes. We will discuss many different topics relating to bordering and state making. I will be pulling from a multitude of sources, papers, and other to answer as succinctly as possible. I will try to give a good outline of all the theoretical discussions, as well as how they relate to more practical matters. I heard you've been helping some research associates with papers on the history of the Azerbaijan and Armenia conflict. What do you think about the recent sudden resurgence of violence and warfare between the two nations? Yes, indeed I have. The most recent conflict is historic because it has once again escalated to full-blown warfare. The Nagorno-Karabakh has led to both states enforcing martial law with over a thousand deaths already being estimated. Tragic news that blood has to spill for land. However, this does beg the question, how are states and borders constructed? Hopefully, you and your expertise can help us understand this a little better. The structure of this podcast will go as follows. We will have a body, which includes all the major theoretical developments on borders and states. 
As well, I will bring in real-world examples and ask Dr. Fomerfeld about how these relate to the broader theories at hand. We will then be concluding the body with a final discussion on the strengths and weaknesses of each of these theories and how they may be applied to real life. Sound good? Sounds like a plan. This topic will be introducing the concept of state and border building. There is obviously a lot of controversy surrounding these conceptions with varying degrees of supportiveness on both sides. This topic, will, we will be introducing the concept of state and border building. There's obviously a lot of controversy surrounding these conceptions with varying degrees of supportiveness on both sides. Obviously, there, there's a lot of controversy given the situations in Palestine and Israel, India and Pakistan, and most recently, Azerbaijan and Armenia, and especially in Crimea between Russia and Ukraine. Now, states are ontologically constructed. As for borders, the question is more contingent and similarly appears to be heavily entrenched either in neither in constructivist or rationalist assumptions. Dr. Flumerfeld, would you please explain how these two phenomena are constructed in further detail? Thanks for the excellent question, Jay. It's very important to outline the ontological foundations of a concept before really dwelling into the nitty and gritty of these theories. First off, we have the state. And from its most basic level, it is a contract that is made between the governor and the governed. This is called the social contract and is extrapolated further in the comparison of ethics reading. In its most basic form, a social contract is an implicit agreement between members of society to cooperate for self-benefit. There are different conceptions of the social contract. On one hand, we have the Hobbesian perspective which, let's say, it's the grandfather of the concept. Hobbes expounds a typical conservative perspective, which really only highlights the advantageous aspects of this contract. That is, people agree to leave the state of anarchy and give up some of their free will to live in relative peace. Comparatively, the content conception is more optimistic and characteristically liberal. He believed that we acted in terms of moral imperative and that people treat others because of their value of humanity. Now that people understand why people agree to the state, it becomes much more clear how it is constructed. Now the modern conception of the state comes from the Treaty of Westphalia. And this was an agreement that was signed in 1648 between European states, which were formally in war with each other it pretty much outlined the modern conception of a sovereign nation. That is, the state is the supremacy of its subject, and nothing exists outside of the state, or anything of the state of any particular relevance. This has been changing with the advent of internationalism. States are still the prime actors in this equation, however, it is shifting. States are created through the centralization of some kind of militant authority, as the reading State of Decay talks about. 
It describes this centralization through the use of an empirical study, which compared various early stage regimes and the level of violence that they found was not so much a part of this, but actually central component of its formation. Now we can talk about borders and their constructions. I will go into further detail about the theoretical foundation of these borders. It is important to talk about its construction from an academic perspective. So according to my fellow academic Agnew, this type of thing is a manifestation of physical or social construction. A physical border can exist outside the individual or individuals. And to quote him specifically, the emphasis on quote, cross pressures across the border between adjacent states, both making and maintaining it in place reflects a completely territorial image of speciality in which territory and states and sometimes our local agents are seen as monopolizing geography of power, end quote. As well, fitting into these physical conceptions could be a religious edict. Well, on the other hand, there's a social understanding which exists within discourse and the quote, borders are out of artifacts and of dominant discursive processes that have led to the fencing off of chunks of territory and people from another country. Great, Dr. Fulmerfeld. I genuinely enjoyed the point about empirical studies as it further cements political science as a science. And I'm very intrigued by your discussion on the concept of othering in border formation the, and the idea of who is inside or outside as such a practical means of determining in-group and out-group membership. As such, I would bring up the example of Zionism and its adjacent Palestinian nationalism, which both appeared to widely different conceptions of what is part of their state or border and what is not. I will now play two recordings, one from a Zionist explaining why Israel is a Jewish state and another from a Palestinian explaining why both of these states are essential to their identity and how the, they start, quote, they function to decide who is inside and who's outside in an essential opposition between the friends and enemies, end quote. Israel needs to exist because there needs to be a Jewish state. Humanity has proven conclusively over many centuries that it cannot be trusted not to persecute Jews. Jew hatred seems to be written right into our DNA because it just keeps coming back. Any Jew who thinks the Holocaust could never happen again is a fool. There are plenty of people on this earth who would love to see it happen again, and many of them live in the countries around Israel. When Arab armies have attacked in the past, they've bragged in advance about committing genocide, and they've still been bragging about it as they were getting their sorry asses deservedly kicked again and again. People who want to boycott Israel have no idea what it's like to live on a thin strip of land surrounded by people who want to wipe out your entire population, who've repeatedly tried to do so in the past and failed, and who will continue trying until they succeed, which is likely to happen roughly never. Now we have a Palestinian writer on the Palestinian resistance. Right now, the protests in Gaza and the, the rising up of the Palestinian people all around historic Palestine is a demand for the end of colonialism and a demand for life. 
the response is not something that should shock us or come as something new. It's This year is the 70, 70th year of the Nakba. That is the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. This is what the entire state is built on, violence. Israel has always responded to Palestinian res resistance with violence, and that is because it feels our our sense of identity in, in our Palestinianism, our pride in our Palestinianism, and the fact that we want to live as Palestinians unapologetically and without being punished for it. When Palestinians say we refuse to forfeit our right to be who we are, Israel is going to fear that because in the end what it wants is a passive population that it can control. Israel is trying to preserve its oppression, and that means by any means possible, even if it includes slaughtering almost 60 Palestinians who are unarmed and protesting in the streets under a besieged city by Israel. The insinuation is Palestinians are presented with a choice, but the, the reality is that Palestinians have no choice but to continue their protest, to continue their defiance. The only other alternative is, is dying in silence. Thank you for this question. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict is the oldest continuing conflict in the world. And I think that discussions on states and borders is essential to understanding and perhaps even giving a prescriptive solution to the seemingly unanswerable question. Starting with the state and its formation, it is important to bring up both sides and how it fits in the previous discussion. Starting with Zionism, which puts simply is the self-determination of Jewish people pretty perfectly fits into the concept of state building. While the idea of a Jewish state is a modern conception, a Jewish state, aka Judea, and the desire for a Jewish state has existed within the Jewish community since antiquity. However, a clear nationalist vision of a Jewish state was founded by visionary Theodore Herzl. He believed that Jews would continue to be existentially under threat until they get their own country. Interestingly enough, given his secular background, he believed in the land of Israel to be the future of the Jewish state, not because of religious reasons, but because this land in particular had historic significance to the Jewish people. In this regard, Zionism was an emancipatory ideology. A good quote by Herzl made the same exclamation that explains that, quote, let me tell you that my friend, and I do not discriminate between humans. We do not ask what race or what religion he is from. He has to be a human being. That is all that's important for us, end quote. This shows that the mandate of Zionism does not exist as another mechanism. Rather, it serves to humanize the Jewish uh, collectivity, which is previously been not afforded the same rights of other ethnic groups which have been under siege. Moreover, the concept of the border is very important to Israel and its identity. In the ancient Jewish holy text, it clearly outlines what is and what is not Israel according to traditional Judean borders before Roman exile. In this regard, the state of Israel should not have been seen as a colonial project as it simply reinstates a historic boundary which already existed instead of introducing something new. Comparatively, we can look at the colonial projects in North America. British settlers and French settlers are not indigenous to the area by any means. They truly used it as a means to increase the riches of their homeland. Israel is not like this. 
Many of the original inhabitants of Israel in 1948 were Holocaust survivors. They didn't have any money. Everything got taken away from them. Or there was Arab Jews who got exiled from other Arab countries. They had no place to go. So in this way, Israel is a reinstatement of what already existed. The Palestinian perspective is a bit different. Similar to Zionism, Palestinian nationalism is a modern phenomenon. Prior to mass Jewish migration to the land of Israel, starting in the 1880s, there was no real conception of a Palestinian identity. Because at the time, the area was under Ottoman control for several centuries at this point. However, once the Jewish state was close to becoming a reality, then there was a surge for a similar type of state, an Arab state. Similar to the Jews, they sold all the land, the common phrase is, from the river to the sea, as part of the Palestinian homeland. However, they were not willing to make a compromise with the Israelis, and there has been a return to conflict since 1948. Originally, there was the Arab-Israeli War in 1948, where a bunch of Arab armies banded together to squash the new Israeli population. They did not succeed. And then, in 1967, there was the Six-Day War, in which a similar situation happened. However, they, the Arabs lost in six days. And at the time, Israel took control of a lot more land. They took control of Golden Heights, which they still are in control of. They took control of Sinai, which they gave back to Egypt in the Camp David Accords as a type of compromise. And then there was the Yom Kippur War in 1973, in which Arab states once again attacked Israel, but this time was on a holy day, in which all the Jews were fasting. It was very unexpected. However, they still came up on top. And since then, there's been two intifadas, and intifadas are slightly different. The Arabs aren't using any type of formal army. It is instead a type of guerrilla conflict between the Palestinian population and the Israeli population. So in this regard, the conflict has, has shifted. A lot of the original support that Palestine had, they no longer have. In fact, recently, a lot of the more powerful Gulf countries have been normalizing relations with Israel. This was not the case even five years ago, which shows that Israel is finally somewhat becoming an accepted authority in the Middle East, something that was just not the case before. So back to what we were saying, however unique are Israelis, the Palestinians conceive of Israel as an invading force, which occupies their land, this being essential to their identity. In this sense, the Palestinian perspective tightly aligns with the view that state building and violence are essential. In places like Gaza, some may interpret that as a type of prison, or a quote, giant camp, as Agnew called it. Many of them feel trapped in the state of another, not being able to realize their own identities until their self-determination. Now we can actually see this with academics such as Edward Said, the founder of post-colonialism. He used the experience of being under Israeli occupation to make a new academic discipline, which instead of focusing on hegemonic identities, instead tries to supplant identities that have traditionally been subverted. So it shows the difference between Jewish and Palestinian views on many different fronts. Interesting points, Dr. Flumerfeld. 
I now I sympathize with both sides and I understand both their struggles. Now given that countries like the UAE have started to build ties with Israel, do you think more countries are going to follow in their footsteps and do you think a two-step two-state solution is becoming more and more viable? Uh of course. So we had UAE and that was a very important milestone in uh, Israel diplomacy. It was the first time that outside of treaties an Arab state has truly normalized relations between Israel. And quickly after that Bahrain had also agreed to normalize with Israel. And Sudan also wants to do it. And so we're seeing a snowball effect almost. However, the Palestinian Authority is saying that this is a entirely negative thing. According to them, they're not normalizing relations and, you know, increasing peace in the Middle East. Instead, they are uplifting a colonial power. So, in this regard, it shows the difference in perspectives. And in regards to your second question, I do truly believe in a two-state solution. And this is a bit of a complicated answer, but I'll try my best. So for the Palestinians, I think that it's very clear that they don't want to have to govern with Israelis. They want to have a distinctly Arab state that's governed by Palestinian values, and according to sovereignty, they'd be allowed to do that. That's why they need their own state. As for Jews, if Palestinians were to integrate into the wider Jewish population in Israel, it would displace the Jewish majority. And because Israel is a democracy, they rely on that Jewish majority in order for them to be a Jewish state. Israel cannot exist as a Jewish state if it has a Jewish minority. Otherwise, it would have to become a theocracy, and that would actually go against the whole purpose of Israel. Israel is destined and designed to be a democracy. And also, I think that if a two-state solution were to happen, then I think that we could see real reconciliation go on. If we were to integrate into a one-state solution, it would play out in a way that we might see in the US between the black and the white population. We would see these major socioeconomic disparities which we don't want to see. Palestinians need their own self-determination and their own means of becoming their own nation so they can truly realize their potential. Great insights, Dr. Flummerfeld. Now, to analyze what we've discussed about, I'd like to bring up a couple broad topics, such as constructivism and realism. Specifically about constructivism is the significance that transnational norms have had and how through social contract theory and over time we have developed these norms. And with realism, the significance of war and invasion and the effects they've had on the modern construction of societies and how British rule is still evident in our world borders today. The example that I'd like to bring up is the Duran Line, which is an arbitrarily imposed border by the British upon then India and Afghanistan. Today, the border divides Pakistan and Afghanistan. I will now play a short clip from Noam Chomsky. Almost everywhere. Let's uh, say, take Iraq. Uh, the British carved out Iraq in their own interests not in the interests of the people of the region. And uh, there are sharp differences among them, the Kurds and the Shiites, and 
Sunni and so on. Furthermore, uh, Britain drew the boundaries of Iraq for, for their own interests again. They, want, they drew the northern boundaries so that Britain, not Turkey, would be able to exploit the oil resources. Uh, they drew the southern boundaries so that Iraq would be almost landlocked. Uh, that's why the Principality of Kuwait was separated out. Uh, and if you look around, uh, Africa is the same thing, uh, Asia, you know, when I said take Pakistan, uh, the British drew a line called the Durand Line, uh, separating what was India from Afghanistan. Now it separates Pakistan from Afghanistan. The line cuts right through the Pashtun area, and kind of Pashtunistan. Pashtun never accepted it. The Afghans never accepted it. And now if people uh, cross that border, we call them terrorists, they may be going home, you know. And the same is true of just about every, that takes say the US-Mexico border. Uh, that was established by a war of aggression uh, in which the US conquered half of Mexico. Uh, you take a look at the names of the cities in the Southwest and Western United States, San Francisco, San Diego, Santa Cruz, I mean, Spanish names. Uh, people went, it was a pretty open border for a long time. Uh, people went up and back for work, for um, visiting relatives, uh, cultural reasons, commercial, whatever. Uh, the, the border's been slowly militarized, a sharp increase in militarization. Now, in terms of realism, we, we are still seeing the effects of British imperial rule today in our borders. And more than that, economically. But back to borders. In terms of realism, which places power of the state over the people, ethics and morality are thrown out the window. This has created detrimental impacts to countries and populations all around the world. But from the realist sense, this has been beneficial since the wars over these borders have allowed countries like the UK, France, and the US to come in and provide aid and portray themselves as saviors when in reality, they are the root of the issue. Thank you for that recording of Noam Chomsky and also your own analysis on the subject. It is very important to speak about imperialism because it is a factor that I would say realists don't really account for in terms of especially the discourse and the historical context that's affected a lot of these countries in regards to their own state making and borders. Now I want to talk about material factors which are important to realism as they focus on the social structures at play to interpret the meaning of the material things. Norms become norms by being generally accepted by societies or societies. Norms can be established for who holds power, who has the right to land, or which people live on certain lands. Quote, I see borders as they exist today and nationalism as twin and internally related developments rather than the fruits of a strategic or rational political instrumentalism suddenly sprang up in the 1600s, end quote, by John Agnew. This connects to state of decay or violence, as violence has been a determinant factor over who has control to a certain region. Violence is the most traditional method of taking over or conquering land. 
it dates back as far as pillaging with the Vikings. So we can compare this to British imperialism. It was a much more detached form of imperialism in that a small amount of people would be the colonial leaders of a huge population, for instance, in India. However, they had massive ramifications. However, because, for instance, the British, over the course of British colonial rule, they stole equivalent to about $20 trillion from the Indian subcontinent, which they still haven't recovered from. So in this regard, Brit British and Vikings are not so different. One is just wearing a suit. So now we have the benefits of borders. Quote, one is straightforwardly instrumental. Borders help create and demarcate institutional and public goods based externality fields. If spending on infrastructure projects, education, highways, etc., for example, must necessarily be defined territorially, as Michael Mann has argued, and the revenue raised con competently, then borders are necessary to define who is eligible and who is not to share in the benefits of the projects in question. So in this regard, Agnew is talking about the benefits of a border. Well, there's been many instances of borders having detrimental effects in the past and the present. In some regards, a borderless world, it would be hard to demarcate resources. If you don't know what is what and what is which, how can you really be effective? And then we have, in regards to this, the liberal and republican ideas of citizenship, how they are closely related and extremely different. Contemporary Republicans have a heavy belief in civic duty being important. The liberal have a relatively similar viewpoint with them, viewing the state as the commonality between all citizens and therefore giving them a reason to vote. Both have an emphasis on political duties. Republicans believe to be a citizen, you must take part in political duties. Liberals believe people are citizens and they owe some obligation to the state and they're encouraged to take part in some fundamental duties, but they don't owe anything other than that. Quote, thus a self-defined political progressive such as Tom Narn can speak openly of a social nature that requires belonging and can be chosen and self-conscious, which can result in people coming to feel more strongly and less ambivalently about their clan, football team, or nation than ask about parents, siblings, and cousins who directly help to form them, end quote. So while these may seem unrelated, I brought them together because I'm really talking about what theories are used to justify these constructions. These are more minute theories within these wider constructivist and relativist viewpoints. And the example you brought up was excellent because it kind of brings them all together in a certain way. You have the citizenship, you have the borders, and then you have more material factors. Now, the borders that were drawn by the British were done for British benefit. They were not done for the natives. For instance, the India and Pakistan border is not beneficial to either. For instance, for uh, people of the Sikh religion, they have to, in certain areas, look through a telescope to be able to see their holy sites because they don't want to go to Pakistan and vice versa. So in many ways, borders affect citizenship. Well, at the same time, they may have some benefits and other times it can be extremely detrimental. Great points, Dr. Flummerfeld. Now, to bring up a real-life case of what we've just discussed would be the Taliban in Afghanistan. The Taliban have significant control over the state, with them controlling in excess of 50% of the nation. This begs the question, does that make them the sovereign power of the state? No, it does not. 
they're not legitimized by foreign states. Now, this portrays the irony in sovereignty in that you have to have acceptance of other states in order to form your own state, which in some sense defeats the purpose of sovereignty. Nevertheless, and the Taliban is not accepted by the population either. In fact, they essentially hold the people of the regions they have power over hostage. What they do is they go into these regions, take them over because the people have very little power and there's not that big of a military presence. And then they radicalize the population by converting the schools into uh, schools that only teach Sharia law and place the ideals that the Taliban want the people to have into children and further increase the population of their own armies. Now, this relates well to the case of indigenous peoples within Canada. In the case of Canada, the indigenous people have become citizens as British and French invaders took power and control over the majority of the territory surrounding them. Great example of a modern day issue that encompasses the problems of citizenship, borders, and states. In re- relating to this, I wanted to bring in the Aboriginal example. I think that it's very relevant from the Sue Generous article. Quote, the call to citizenship ignores the Aboriginal heritage and its substantial involvement in building the Canadian Federation. It is more an invitation to compliance of colonialism and domination than a nation building exercise. It does not work to find a common ground between the two groups. Rather, it works to formally assert the authority of the Canadian government over the indigenous peoples that have existed informally for years. By making them Canadian, their native identities are being diluted. This method, quote, confuses citizenship as a right to political or civil membership with citizenship as a right to presence in the territory. There is another perspective to this. There are economic and personal benefits to being a citizen of a country, such as the rights to travel internationally. Some passports are better than others. For instance, if your passport is from Iraq, you are sanctioned and cannot visit many countries, but if your passport is from Canada, you can visit a lot of other countries visa-free. So in this regard, you can see how a certain citizenship can increase your mobility rights. Now, going back to our original indigenous example, this would not be possible with the indigenous citizenship as it is not globally recognized, whereas the Canadian one is. The right to partake in elections and stand for office as well would be another right that they may not have. Also, as a citizen and resident of Canada, they would not have to worry about tariffs and being imposed on them. Rather, they would be eligible to receive subsidies from the Canadian government. This depends on the industry they work in. So as you can see, there may be benefits and negatives to really endorsing this extra citizenry that we'd have for aboriginals outside of the traditional Canadian Federation. However, it would be kind of hard to institute it as it probably wouldn't be globally recognized as they don't want to abide by the more formal rules of citizenry. Now for the informal discussion, now that we've spoken about citizenship, I want to bring up a interesting concept. Should animals be afforded human rights, the same rights that we have, and should they be afforded citizenship? It's it's an interesting topic because they, they function almost the same as humans in the sense that they have feelings, they have emotions, they communicate with one and each other. But through our norms, we have accepted animals as lesser. Dr. Flummerfeld, what do you think about this? 
Um, yeah, great question. Uh, I think that on an informal level, I think animals and humans are superficially different. You know, we like to prescribe to religion or some humanistic perspective to try to make humans seem, you know, within their own class of their own, but on a more biological level, animals and humans aren't that different. Yes, perhaps humans have created societies, you know, they've altered their environments in a way that's never been done by an animal, they have conscience, they have a, uh, the ability to know that they exist, however, does this really matter? And this is where constructivism or realism is important, because a realist would only focus on the biology of the situation. However, a realist is very focused on rationality, so a realist might actually say that animals and humans are distinctly different because it, an animal is unable to really be aware of what a right is or protect other people's rights, therefore they themselves shouldn't get rights. Well, a constructivist would say that, why is it that humans only get rights? Ultimately, it's a construction, right? There's no inherentness to a right, therefore why should we only impose it on one branch of living beings? So I don't really have a specific answer because I kind of prescribe to both views. Okay, now a few points against the realist perspective is what if we compare animals to children or people under 18? Children or people under 18 certainly don't have the right to vote and they don't have the right to take part in many political activities. They're also extremely dependent on their parental figure. The same could be said for animals, who are also extremely dependent on their parental figure to provide them with food, shelter, and nutrition. Now, I don't have an answer for the question either, but it's just a few points to think about when figuring out a real answer to this question. Now that we have discussed how citizenships, borders, and states are formed, and now that we have discussed what theories are used to form citizenships, borders, and states, we will look into which theories are the strongest and most evident. It is important to keep in mind that as an academic that is more consumed by quantitative analysis, they will tend to reject constructivist theories and vice versa. But there is a growing view, and I hope you can explain this further, which emphasizes a bridging of the two theories into a more nuanced and coherent singular vision. From, from this view then, they cannot exist independent of each other, or else that is a bad scholarship. However, this does not have to be the case, as in the reading, what is social construction? They help make constructivism empirically sufficient in the sense that there is a causal and constitutive constructivism. A circle, this result can help us to evaluate arguments to the effect that a certain property or trait is or is not socially constructed. Because from the claim that a certain trait is intrinsic or biologically real, we can only infer that it is not socially constructed in the constitutive sense, but we cannot rule out that it is causally socially constructed." End quote. Likewise, according to the realist perspectives, they believe their qualitative conclusions are explanatory enough 
in the sense that other arguments are non-falsifiable. And one can make only one can only make an inference at best. What I ask of you is can you go into further details about these views relating to border and state construction? First off, assuming they cannot be bridged together, can you talk about which side you think is more encapsulating? of the actual ontological and practical characteristics of these two concepts especially in regard to what is more useful in general next can you go into further detail about how they can be borrowed together in a more coherent matter as i have previously previously described the floor is yours okay so first off i will discuss my preferences for which theories I prefer in particular, from a philosophical point of view, from which I will then use to talk about the more practical benefits of both. Starting off, I think that, at least in terms of borders and states, constructivism is the strongest overall theory, and it coincides with other theories. However, I will explain in further detail which of the theories within the constructivist literature that I agree with the most. So in general, unlike more realist conceptions, constructivism is a more discursive lens than a foundational view. By the nature of the broad theory, it is heavily contextualized and cannot be defined in such a matter than more rationalist perspectives can. Within the state, the constructivist view of the state is very nuanced and coherent. While the conception of a state appears to be an objective reality, it is nothing more than a construction of European origin, or at least a prevailing norm that a state is essential for sovereignty or being taken seriously. According to the classical constructivist view, quote, X may not exist, it may be determined by the nature of things, but it is not inevitable, end quote. In this regard, the state can be seen as a type of idea, which is contingent on the social world. For instance, the concept of sovereignty is seen to be a fundamental concept of international relations. While states may enter international organizations for cooperation reasons, the whole idea of the state being the heart of this cooperation is a construction ultimately. A good example would be the concept of sovereignty costs. This is considered a material consideration in any international discussion. For instance, the United States refused to abide by the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court because they feared it would impact their ability to practice their own sovereignty. As one can see, this concept of sovereignty, which is a construction, has become so normative that it is no longer just considered an idea, but the actual means by which objects such as money, military, food are considered. As this example shows in terms of the state, constructivism allows us to better understand the underlying reasons for not just why an idea exists, but how that idea materially impacts non-ideas, which would be objects. Now that I've explained my more general support for constructivist views of the state, I can talk about some of the reading's more specific theories. To start with social contract theory, Given my constructivist leanings, I would more so support the Kantian conception of the social contract. As opposed to Hobbesian, while both are not really constructive perspectives, I would say that the Kantian view is more compatible in general, because it is more abstract and understands morality as, quote, categorical imperative, end quote, as opposed to some inherent human desire. Kantian constructivism, in this sense, prefers a formal conception of practical reason. They are skeptical of the dogmatic types of reason for Hobbes which supposed that reason can be deduced in a very mathematical and mechanistic way. He prefers the metaphysical adaptability, which will actually allow for some kind of universal form of morality. 
This is better reflected in the concept of the supreme principle, which quotes only by recognizing that the human being is bound only to act in conformity with his own will, which, however, is a will-giving universal law. We can avoid both horns of the relativist dilemma if we focus on this. This reflects a benefit of normative constructivism over normative realism, as it seems to avoid the metaphysical problems of realism. Moreover, in terms of the theories of the state, such as the monopoly of violence, the study was analyzed in a positivist manner. However, the work of Charles Tilley and his discussion of the state as a criminal organization can help explain this phenomenon. He speaks about the four stages of state building, war making, state making, protection, and extraction. In this sense, the monopoly of violence only touches upon state making. However, positivism actually helps validate these ideas. As for borders, I think this is where constructivism really shines. I think that borders are social manifestations masquerading as objects. Starting at its foundation, Jay, Agnew acknowledges that borders today are Eurocentric offshoots rather than some genuine reflection of territorial otherness. He set this conception spread because either imposition, Britain directly drawing borders that we previously mentioned, or the creation of political norms that practically make any political unit impossible to exist outside of the original European conception. In this regard, many of the realist assumptions of borders are not some untenable reality of the local population, but is perhaps used as a justification for the quote, perpetual instability of the border, which provides the symbolic power of these borders to begin with. A good quote that I found from the Agnew reading was, quote, border zones expose the limits of contemporary liberal democracies. They contradict the normative foundation of liberal democracies, their emphasis on fundamental rights and the guarantee of civil liberties against government power, end quote. Simply put, borders exist to create discontent, so to justify said border against this threat. However, and in support of the constructivist angle, this may be changing as the past normative uh, spatial ontology may be changing in our increasingly globalized society. With the rising economic interdependence, which, because of growing technology and geopolitical changes, has somewhat disrupted the once rigid flow of capital. Secondly, the way it's changing is the growing support for universal human rights has disrupted the traditional relationship between the citizen and the state, which may increase transnational justification for universal legalism. And this has already been happening with the ICC. So there is real material examples of borders shifting. Now that I have clearly outlined why I prefer constructivism, I can more briefly talk about how if you combine it with realism, it maintains the parsimony of both while widening the explanatory scope. In this regard, rationalism can be used as an expository means of explaining construction. Put together, they can be used for a greater purpose, which can lead to a more clear academic scholarship. Now that you've explained which theories are the strongest, let's delve into which theories could use a little bit of work. Now, theories are constantly evolving and developing given the current global political climate, which is ever-changing. Depending on perspective, every theory could be further developed. But through your perspective, what theories do you think need additional language? Personally, I think rational theory could be further added upon. Theory is a necessary aspect of political science. Empirical data along with constructivist theory needs to work together in order to create complete arguments or proposals. How do we implement new ideas and projects if we can only use empirical studies? With the strong foundation and data, 
we can only branch out from what already exists as nothing new will be created as there will be no science or analysis to support it. What do you think about this, Dr. Flumerfeld? Thanks for this question, Jay. I 100% agree. I think that rational theory without constructivist theory and vice versa are incomplete in many ways. So as we have established, this is largely an ontological debate. Both rationalism and constructivism are both realist ontologies. Unlike, say, post-structuralism, which considers objective knowledge to be futile, if not rife with implicit biases. Both views are compatible in the sense that they consider there to be a material and immaterial reality. However, the means by which they understand or explain these realities is very different. In terms of the state, one can assume that the Hobbesian conception is more in line with realism. There's no ifs or buts about what is the essence of the social contract, rather that it has a clear causative chain which extends from the inherent self-interested individual. In this sense, there is a clear objectivity to the whole matter. The individual is less a reflection of their society, but more society is a reflection of the individual. For instance, game theory attempts to find the foundation for cooperation, according to mathematical logic. At the essence of this is the individual, and thereby the state is purely self-interested and very predictable. At a more international level, theorists such as classical realists will extend the social contract from individuals between states so as to move out of the state of anarchy. In this regard, I consider the rationalist to be admirable in scope, but it is very assumptive of its understanding of the state and human nature. This extends into their methodology, which tends to add uncorrelated dependent variables to account for exceptions to their very strict conception of states. As such, these issues have extended themselves into rational concepts of citizenship as well. For instance, realism restricts globalization. With realism, states create an extremely clear line of inside or outside and make sure that foreign states adhere to it. Realism can restrict globalization through the imposition of tariffs or quotas on foreign goods. They do this to attempt to further local industries rather than cave into globalization cheaper foreign goods. Realism places power as the absolute goal of any state. And I think that this is very reductive to how states actually interact with each other and how states interact with their citizens. I think that constructivism is much better at really encapsulating the actual dialogue that goes on between individuals and actors. I think that realism attempts to mechanize in something that is a social science. And we call this social science because it is different to material science. And I think that constructivism reflects that in many ways. While realism tries to apply a methodology that really should only on itself apply to stuff that can be replicated and be observed in a lab. But that's just not the case when it comes to citizens and how they interact with each other. Now that we've looked at what theories are strongest, what theories need work, and what theories are most relevant. Now that we've looked at what theories are strongest, and what theories need work, and what theories apply today, we're gonna look at how these theories apply to modern social context. Dr. Flumerfeld will go into detailed analysis into some of these, which will be followed by me going into analysis for a few of them. Thanks for that, Jay. So the first theory that I'm going to try to apply today will be rationalist and constructivism. First off, rationalism and constructivism, as we've already established, can be used in congruence with each other to help provide a prescriptive solution to some of the prevailing issues of the borders and states. In terms of bordering, 
we can use the constructivist and rationalist view to help reframe our understanding of what a citizen is and what constitutes a border. What rationalism provides us with is the quantitative or the physical reason for a border. A more critical perspective can help de-emphasize some of the more toxic qualities of the normative conception of borders in the modern world. And this requires a deconstructive reading of how borders currently impact those unable to escape their borders. Well, I don't suggest we go totally borderless. I think what Agnew calls civic registration will help to avoid some of the more nationalist views in which a certain territory belongs to a certain group by virtue of being born there. However, we should not call for totally open borders as borders serve a valuable identity, security, and resource distribution purpose. However, by introducing civic registration, it can help de-emphasize some of the more toxic elements. As for the state, we should understand the importance of domestic and transnational norms. For instance, the idea of a zombie as a uniquely strong threat is an example of how social construction can take a generally shapeless material object and turn it into something that is meaning to wider society. I think that people are cognizant of the impact of norms and others' actions. Then we will begin to become more empathetic of those of different values in us. This can also lead to more emphasis on non-state actors, which are so-called norm entrepreneurs, such as NGOs. As while the states might still be the main actors in the world system, they are really reactive to other interests beyond themselves. Thus, more focus on activism should be the norm if we want real change. Now for the monopoly of violence, I think that this theory provides us with a greater understanding of state formation. In terms of applying this to the modern world, there are still plenty of new states, and states yet to be created which could benefit from people understanding the inherent violence of the centralization of state power. Perhaps much of the misery which is caused could be avoided or minimized if people are aware of the dangers of the formation of new states and the violence they use to assume this authority over its new subjects. Next, we'll have social contract theory. And I don't think this needs to be fully reinstated. Social contract theory is, and will continue to be the foundation of all interaction between individuals. However, outside of academic circles, it is still not widely known. Yet should be information that every person has access to. How can you expect someone to honestly be a good citizen if they don't understand the intellectual reasoning behind adhering to this social contract? Ignorance can lead to those unaware of this contract to break it more often and can lead to more criminality. That is why more emphasis on this theory is vital. So now I will give the room to Jay. Spaces of exclusion exist throughout the world, from international embassies to entire islands for refugees. Christmas Island has housed thousands of refugees from Asia since its creation in 2001. The island being close to Indonesia, but part of Australia, has made it an attractive site for refugees fleeing conflict. Albeit part of Australia, those on the island are not granted access to Australian law. Hundreds of protesters at a time have gone on hunger strikes to protest the ill treatment they are facing from Australian authorities. A lawsuit against the Australian government has been filed to ensure justice for the thousands of people that have been mistreated while trying to flee violence within their home countries. This is not the only space of exclusion like this that exists. There are many others in Europe as well. There are also many others in the Mediterranean. Spaces of exclusion display the failures of liberal democracies who strive to have the best interests of people within their borders. Clearly, they fail to show compassion to all that reside within their territory. The tenets of liberal democracies fail to be portrayed in these areas of exclusion. 
Furthermore, I would like to move on to liberal and republican citizenship. An aspect of republican citizenship can also be found in Australia, where voting in the federal election has become mandatory. This ties in with republican citizenship as a civic duty is a fundamental act to being a citizen according to Republicans. Liberal citizenship can be seen in most countries where there is a sense of togetherness and community. People feel in inclined to vote or participate in their political duties because of the compassion they feel for their family and community. Sports, the national anthem, and food are all aspects that can increase the sense of nationalism within an individual and therefore make them feel as if it is their responsibility to vote and partake in their political duties. Whew, we're finally done. We really have gone over a lot of the core tenets of constructivism, rationalism, citizenry, borders, states. I think that your listeners have, have really gotten something to get them into this topic. It, it's a pretty dense topic. However, I think that hopefully through your great interviewing, we've provided a structure for them to supplant their further research. What do you think, Jay? Thank you for the compliments, but we can also not forget that we've gone over monopoly of violence, social contract theory, and spaces of exclusion as well, while providing our listeners with great examples that are occurring in the modern world today. And obviously, I cannot leave without thanking you for joining me today on this wonderful podcast. You've provided great insight on all the topics and great information to substantiate your views and opinions. I look forward to having you, Dr. Flumerfeld, on an upcoming podcast to further develop the ideas we've discussed today. For sure. But unfortunately for our guests, unfortunately for us, we have to leave now to attend an event or and seminar by PhD candidate Dr. Lalonde. See you guys next time. Thank you for having me, guys.